Welcome to episode two of the Inside Out by Alma G podcast, a podcast all about entrepreneurship. This episode, we are going to be talking about collaboration, coalition building, and networking. And yes, those are all three different things. The guests that we have today are going to be talking about how they collaborate in the workplace, how they build coalitions, build alliances within the workplace, and how they network across their peer group and across their colleagues to make and create new opportunities for themselves. If you don't know how to build coalition, if you can't build bridges, if you cannot connect with people, if you cannot um, raise awareness and get people on your side, you're going to have a very, very difficult time thriving within any organization and any system. I quite remember that one of my mentors when I was um, in university had dinner. Well, it was lunch with me and it was a very kind of trying political time. I was working in DC at the time and she asked me if I would ever do politics. And I thought, never. Like I just associate politics with just grime and lies and deceit. But one thing that she said that I carry with me to this day was that every single thing is political. And when she said that, I was like, "Mm, is it? But as I got older, I realized facts because politics is about leveraging power. It's about using the knowledge, the resources, whatever it is you have to push your agenda, to push your ideas, to, you know, make something happen. And whether that's in your family, in your church, in your organization where you work, whatever it is that you're doing, you're always trying to leverage power, leverage or negotiate your position for something. So I'm excited that these guests talk about how they navigate power and relationship in order to benefit themselves, to benefit the companies, and to really push their vision and push their ideas and innovations forward. So let's take a listen. Our first clip in this episode is from Efwa. You remember Efwa, my BFFL of life, who works at the World Bank. In her work, she works with governments and the private sector on different kinds of projects. And working with both the private and the public sector can be quite a task because they do sometimes speak very different languages. In speaking to Efwa, I realized that the work she did could also be seen as working in a bilingual working culture. Whereas, obviously, it's not English to French, it's not Tri and Ga, but it is a situation where you're having to translate between two different codes. I mentioned this to her, and this is what she had to say. Um, I think because you you alluded to the time that I spent full-time in Ghana, uh, 
I can bring up a few examples um, with the World Bank. It gave me insight into a lot of interpersonal skills, understanding what the needs are of different stakeholders. Because as essentially the point person for my global unit, um, I was representing them on the ground. You have the interest of people who are not there um, or do not particularly understand the landscape as well as you do, um, being there day in, day out. So it's a lot of first understanding the position of both sides of the party, um, whether government, whether the World Bank, and their position, understanding why, and then being able to communicate that in their own language to them. Because they can think they're in a meeting translating what they think um, is their position to the other party. And this goes for government to World Bank or World Bank to government. And I'm sitting there thinking, they're not picking up what you're saying. I, kn- I know what you're saying. And I think I know that you think you're saying it in the way you think you're saying it, but they're not picking it up in that way. I first have to understand that. And so when I'm sitting in a meeting, I'm like, they're not picking this up. And later on, I can go back and be like, this is what this person actually meant. And I don't think they probably understood you um, because knowing them, knowing their personality, knowing their needs, their wants, they're not understanding what you just said. So we're going to have to probably follow up, communicate to them differently um, on this matter and vice versa. Um, And so doing that a lot in Ghana was like, it gave me a lot of experience, a lot of learning on, you know, translating because we can be all sitting in the same room literally heard the same thing, but we didn't take it the same way. Um, And so it's important to have people in the room that understand both sides and understand, you know, culture, even the way people do things and be able to translate it to both sides. Being a cultural translator is a game changer. When you're collaborating, when you're building coalition, when you're trying to build advocacy blocks, you need to be able to translate between different types of languages in the office or in the workspace. This is something that is honed by exposing yourself to different people, to different work environments, to different sounds, different views. As we noted in episode one, Effa found herself in a number of places before she landed where she is today. And all of those places allowed her to pick up different types of language skills that enabled her to sit in these meetings with these people and translate between them. Language, quite frankly, builds trust. And the most trusted person in the room can be the most powerful when it comes to brokering relationships because they sit at the center and they are the ones who determine the value of what is being passed between the two parties. way you've just brought up this bilingual thing, it's also, I see it in in the communication realm of trying to get people to collaborate and understand each other, but I also see it in the technical realm Mm. because I think you and I, one of the things that we both have like a comparative advantage on and what we're good at is we might not be the technical people doing the work. Um, I'm not doing project finance. I'm not forecasting. I'm not doing um, the actual um, technical work of infrastructure. But because I've been in the space and I've done some work in the past on the technical aspect for the financing, um, 
I can read that information. I can understand that information and I can communicate it. And so there's the bilingual of the communication between the two parties of whether an government and and whatever multilateral uh, organization you're working for or the World Bank. And then there's also the technical team and then either government or the technical team and being able to communicate it to the outside party, external affairs, external people of, you know, this is how we should communicate this. This is too technical. We need to break it down. How will they digest this aspect of, you know, the feasibility report that was done, um, we need to communicate what is the conclusion of it and what it means for government or what it means for the everyday person that's going to be using this road. Um, And so there's like two types of bilingual that I think that I have had a lot of experience in over my career. Now, say hello again to Nana. I asked her how she was able to make her ideas heard in her workplace and make the impact that she's made being an African woman in a very male-dominated field. Let's listen to what she has to say. Um, I think what's worked for me, and especially something I had to learn moving from like a Western um, American mindset or corporate setting to an African one, is that um, we're very community-driven. So... Um, my first piece of advice is to have allies and to always do informal lobbying. So Mm -hmm. I would, I would, before I even got to the stage of like formally drafting the proposal and, you know, writing and submitting it through the required approval channels, I would just have a coffee, you know, with somebody who, whose advice I, um, respected or somebody who would be somehow implicated in what I was proposing and just sit down with them and be like, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? And bounce ideas off of them in a very informal way. And once I got that person to be like, Oh, you know, that's really smart. You should, why don't, why don't you propose it? You know, once I would get that one, two, three, four times, then I would do the proposal and then you know, by the time it went through the ecosystem, people were already not only aware of it, but a bit excited about it. And Mm. it also having those um, informal sessions also allowed me to like improve the concept because I could also already foresee where the resistance might be, where the questions would come from, what um, areas would need to be clarified. So I think having informal sessions and and having advocates, like having kind of informal sponsors of the idea before you even present it is important. Get allies and do informal lobbying. Get advocates, get friends, get people in your corner. I mean, it's exactly as I said, everything really is political. The truth is, no matter how you splice it, people are important. You're going to need them. And no man is an island. You must work with others, but you have to, must, must, have to, definitely bring value to the table. In Effa's case, she was bringing her language skills to the table, being able to broker those relationships. In Nana's case, she was bringing her ideas, her innovations to the table and leveraging them across different people. You cannot enter any relationship empty-handed. 
Nana also shared some nuggets with me on how to achieve mobility within an organization. In a time when millennials are statistically more likely to leave jobs after three or four years, how is it possible to stay within the same job but move up? Coalition building is a big part of that. Let's hear a little bit more about Nana's experience at her workplace. As a millennial, we are a bit... um, uh, we're, we're, we're considered to not be loyal to organizations. So we're always like moving every three to five years, jumping up and down, trying to, you know, move up. And, uh, and in a lot of organizations, that's the only way that you can actually get promotions or get raises. And I was definitely, for example, on that um, path when I was still in management consulting. So I worked for IBM after grad school for just three years and then moved to Deloitte because I was like, okay, I don't want to be, you know, it's been three years. I didn't get promoted. So I'm out. Like they're giving me Mm. a promotion. They're giving me the 20, you know, percent raise. Mm. I'm out of here. And then, um, I came to African development bank and, when I joined, I was of the same mindset. I was like, okay, in three years, I'm out of here. You know, if this young professionals program doesn't show me, um, you know, doesn't respect me or put respect on my name, like mm-hmm. I'm out of here. But what I've realized now that I'm almost 10 years in this organization is that you can have, and this is in line with the entrepreneurship thought, you can have a career but not stay stagnant. Like mm. moving, the, you have to move organizations. So in my career, I I was quite deliberate in that I will dedicate 150% of myself to a team or a department for a minimum of three years. But after mm. that, I will start looking. And what that has resulted in has been a much wider network of people who knew what I do you know knew my um capacity and my skill set um it also meant that people wanted me back so for example one of the teams that i was in five six years ago is now the team that gave me my last promotion so i've gone back in a full circle moment to um one of my one of the teams i was in when i first joined the bank and was still in the young Mm. professionals program So for me, I think internal mobility to the extent that it's possible needs to be pursued like 1000% and not feel guilty about that. Um, And the other thing, like what you were saying, is that no no boss is going to tell you to do that. You see what I'm saying? Like the bosses are going to be like, they're concerned about their own team and their sustainability on the team. So they will likely not advise you to... Yeah. go somewhere else. So this is in line with what you're saying about, you know, not everybody's going to spoon feed you what you need to do. Like you need to understand that the higher up you go, the more generalist you need to be. So yes, when you're a specialist, you definitely need to be deep. You need to understand a subject matter like super, super well. But as you're going up, it's less about the technical nitty gritty stuff and it's more about politics and strategy and that means that you need to know more people you need to have you know more people around you you need to have more sponsors and your your reach has to be broad and not deep 
Now let's get back to my brother in creative adjacency, Kobe. Kobe is a business development expert who gave us his thoughts on envisioning in the last episode. I asked him about coalition building as well, especially within the context of being a young person trying to prove your value to a company. I think being young on this continent has got to be like the worst thing. Because <laughs> not only do you have all the energy, all the ideas, but nobody's listening. <laughs> so I asked Kobe, how can a young person who's trying to prove their value to a company build network and build trust so that they can show up and show off? Here's what he had to say. So especially in a corporate setting, the first thing um, I would say is to understand the motivations of the organization. So if it's a for-profit organization, right? So think, think here you are in a European, um, and, and I'll use a national example, then come to a local one. So you're in a European or American multinational that has come and set up shop in, 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 in Ghana, right? They have one primary motivation and one primary fear. Their motivation is how do we maximize our you know, our, our, our profit and how do we maximize the amount of money we're making in this market? That's one. Now, their biggest fear is that, oh my goodness, we're literally in a high risk, um, high corruption country in the middle of nowhere with none of our senior managers. And we have to trust these, um, you know, people who, you know, didn't go to the same schools that we did, didn't, you know, haven't, don't have the same life orientation that we have. And we have to trust them that they will do right by our company. Okay. Now, if you understand that these are the two and others, right? But these, I would say, these are probably the primary motivators um, for the way and manner in which these companies like this think, then you can start to slowly pick away at each of these. When you join a company, you want to very quickly establish credibility. Think of a project, think of, you know, some sort of, you know, initiative breakthrough that all of a sudden goes from, hmm, this guy is fantastic. Um, and it's funny how these things work, but in my experience, it, it's almost it's almost as if once you've made that first impression, people give you a lot of rope, even if you don't do anything for a while. So you want to come out of the gates running. Um, mm -hmm. then you also want to start and, and speak their language in terms of, so in even in meetings and whatnot, be the person that raises red flags with respect to risk. So you're identifying risks they've never identified and said, well, actually, I think this could be an issue. I think that could be an issue. But not to worry, here's how I solve it. Okay, and all of a sudden they're like, ah, this guy gets where we're coming from. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's how I handle the, you know, risk and credibility aspect of it. The other piece becomes mm -hmm. always be able to draw a line between what you're proposing, what you're trying to do, and the bottom line. You yeah. don't want to be the guy who's pitching, let's go and spend $300,000 instead of $100,000 um, and mm -hmm. not be able to say why that is beneficial to the company. So that would be my mm -hmm. piece of advice to people looking to to um, to do things of that of that nature in multinational settings. Um, and I think that advice also applies to local companies as well. I completely agree with Kobe. I mean, you need to understand the fears and motivations of the generation before us. I think one lesson that I'm learning as I become an old person, <laughs> every day, right, we get closer to our, our geriatric state. So as I become an older person, I realize how much I don't know. And I think that, you know, one of the 
the hallmarks, I guess, of being older is just um, the amount of uncertainty. Like you realize that things that felt very sure when you were young are not as sure as they seem. So when someone brings you something and they feel so confident in it, it's almost like contemptuous, like, bruh, relax. We've been there. We've seen. But I agree. When you understand those fears, when you understand those motivations, you can establish your own credibility. You can speak to those more easily and you can come out of the gate running. I also think at the same time that you don't want to put all your cards on the table when you're, you know, building coalition and and trying to show your value in a space in order to um, build network and, and get like mentorship and just get support. Because when you put everything on the table, then you are put in a position where you have to, to meet that standard every single time. And so your 100 becomes a standard. And I personally feel like no one deserves my 100 <laughs> except Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But no one really should get that much of myself. So I, I agree that, you know, you come in it, understand the fears, understand motivation, speak to that, come out of the gate running with something in hand that solves a problem, but at the same time, be be metered, right? Like, don't you don't have to give your every single thing, but give enough to be of value, but not so much that you're just like, you know, running on a treadmill of life. So you need to identify what is your low lift that is high value. I personally call this min-maxing. I'm the queen min-maxer. What is the minimum I can do to maximize the output I'm going to get from this uh, arrangement or agreement? And that might seem like exploitative, but at the end of the day, if you don't if you don't think about that, you will be exploited yourself. So what is your low lift? How do you min max? And how do you provide value that is useful um, that allows you, you know, to hold hands with people, to be, you know, a partner without driving yourself to the ground? As Kobe said, you do need to draw a line between what you're proposing, what you're bringing to the table, and the bottom line. I work in the public sector where the bottom line is not necessarily profit, but maybe impacts like lives so saved, books read, you know, things of that nature. So how is what I'm doing, the minimum, mind you, that I want to do that will provide the maximum output to them? Um, how am I drawing a line between those things? Um, and how do I build a mental bridge for the people around me? And I really like that Kobe brought that up because sometimes we have things in our imagination that make complete sense. The line is there. The value is there. We're like, yo, this is a hit. And the person that we're talking to, and this is where F was point on language comes in, the person that we're talking to is not seeing it. Like you're not painting the picture. The math is not mathing. It's just not working for them, right? And so you need to really figure out like, how do I bring that language and that idea in a way that makes sense to that person without, you know, doing too much. And I feel like I had a lot to say about this because Kobe does a lot and I feel like you can do less and, and get more, right? So that's my dad on that. Jalen is an HR professional, one of my sisters from undergrad. Um, she graduated with me from Cornell. And she is a boss lady at her job. She did not have it smooth sailing, though, getting into the positions that she has been able to occupy. But when she was looking for a job, networking and the specific way of how she networked was an important part of that experience. Let's listen to what Jalen has to say. Yeah, so that was um, that was an interesting um, an interesting turn of events. So Barclays Capital ended up. Uh, 
purchasing Lehman Brothers and I was there for a time, uh, but I realized that New York City just wasn't really where I wanted to be. Uh, and there were some other things that were going on in my personal life as well. Uh, and I made the decision to actually leave New York City and go home. Mm-hmm. I, and so I'm, I'm originally from Ohio um, and I went back home uh, for a little while and I was out of a job. <laughs> and that was... That was really scary, you know. I, I, yeah, I know. I just talked about this spiritual lens that I have, but then once those paychecks stopped, yeah. <laughs> and I, I literally had to forge a new path on my own. It was mm-hmm. scary. Um, nevertheless, I, um, I, I really relied on the experiences that I gleaned from when I was in New York City and when I was working at the financial institutions, um, and used that to kind of reshape my resume. Um, and make sure that I was able to articulate transferable skills on my resume because I wasn't sure where I was going to end up. I didn't know if I was going to mm-hmm. stay in HR or if I was going to be in another opportunity. But I mm-hmm. knew that I had developed skills that were transferable to a lot of careers. I looked at uh, different careers that I thought I could potentially be successful at. Mm-hmm. And um, looking at those job descriptions and what they required, I knew that I had those skill sets. So, yes, mm-hmm. it does take a, a little bit of research Um to actually identify where you would fit. And hopefully you're able to fit in a number of different areas right. so that you can, you know, kind of write your own check there. Yeah. And, uh, and so I actually signed up with a uh, staffing agency uh, and they uh, put me in contact with someone who um, was hiring uh, for an HR position in his company. And he happened to go to Cornell as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this is where your network really comes into play in ways mm-hmm. that you wouldn't, you know, you don't always know it when you're in school or when it's, you know, going around you. But um, maximizing your network before you need your network is really important. So I asked Jalen, like, what is meant by maximizing your network before you need your network? When is it facetious and like, hey, I want something or I don't know what I want, but I know you have power. So let me like hang around and brown nose. Like, how do you maximize networks without diminishing substance in relationships? As someone who is not... Um, and I know that I'm in HR, but I'm actually not very social. I'm not, I'm not that much of a social person. Mm-hmm. So I can assure you that you will not just be getting random emails from me. Um, I always email with a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even if that purpose is to get a better understanding of um, your expertise or, or some things that you, um, that, you, that you might have like a strong knowledge sense of. Like, mm-hmm. for example, I know some people who went to... Uh, Cornell or who I have worked with in other companies, and I've seen blog posts that they've done. And so if I found that content interesting, I would reach out to them um, and engage them in discussion and and try to get a better understanding of where they're coming from and things like that. So um, there are natural ways that you can do it without it being so targeted and so uh, calculated, I guess. Mm. Um, So that's what I'm saying, you know, maximize your network before you actually need your network. Mm. Um, And in this particular instance, uh, he happened to go to Cornell uh, and knew some of the people who, um, like some of my administrators and professors and so on, we were able to connect that way. Mm. Um, And so those shared stories, um, I don't even know what he asked me during the interview, but I know we had shared stories from Cornell. So that's another way of maximizing your network before you need it. You know, really investing and being present in the time and space that you're in. Um, had I just kind of like gone through the motions 
um, when I was in school and didn't make connections with my professors, I wouldn't have been able to have those shared stories with him during that interview. Jalen's point about following the content of people within your circle and building what she called starting stories together is really, I think, unique and interesting, right? Because most people, you know, it's like, you know, just like build a relationship with the person, get to know them, so on and so forth. But social media has created the the space where we can actually follow people, understand a little bit of who they are, what they value, things like that, and actually genuinely connect around things that we also connect um, connect with. So, I mean, to be honest, that really means you need to keep a, you know, you need to be online or somewhere where the person or the set of people that you're interested in networking with are. Um, and you, I like that she mentioned, you know, building stories. It's not like, oh, I'm going to meet this person and interview this person about the things that we share in common. But it's actually like we're building a story together. So, you know, in a conversation that I have with that person who maybe their interest is um, palm wine. I don't know why that came to mind. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> maybe their interest is palm wine. And instead of you going and be like, oh, I saw that you tweeted about palm wine. I love palm wine. Oh, my God. Let's talk about palm wine. You know, an experience or a story that you build about that is, you know, is being able to say, like, I noticed that you, yes, I noticed that you were talking about palm wine, but I re- I recently found out about a new palm wine something, you know, would you be interested in joining or is that something that you'd want to do? I can send you the details, right? Like now you're building an experience with the person, like I'm inviting you to be part of something that I know that you'll be interested in as opposed to. Let me just talk to you about something that I know we have in common. And then it's like weird, which I struggle with sometimes. So y'all remember my girl Sharon, you know, from episode one, who was lamenting about throwing her pearls to swine when she found herself in background check, a place where she did not want to be. Here she talks actually about how she used other networks and other groups within her organization to get her closer to the place that she wanted to be, closer to what her vision was for herself. So let's listen in on what Sharon had to say. Um, And at the same time, I built my network within the organization Mm. with people uh, who were in the roles I wanted to Mm. be in. And um, I took advantage of being involved with our employee resource group, what we call Affinity Networks. I was involved in our Black and Latino network within my division and within the broader firm-wide Black network. And so that gave me an opportunity to be involved in, for example, planning our um, leadership conference one year. Uh, I had the opportunity to, to network with people across divisionally across the organization. So similar to Jalen, she talks about the importance of taking advantage of opportunities that are presented to her. Here, she describes building networks across divisions and in places where she wanted to be. Sometimes those shared stories that Jalen talked about can be developed right there in the professional setting or in the organizational setting. And what I think is really interesting with Sharon is that she wasn't just a participant. She was part of the planning. So she was both meeting people and networking in sort of the social sense, but also showcasing her skill set and what she was able to do with a set of people who otherwise would not have the chance to um, to see that. So if you're given that opportunity to volunteer, to lead a, a group or to work on a workshop, to do those things that seem extracurricular to your actual job, 
take advantage of that. That could be your lifeline towards your vision and out of the set of um, circumstances that you find yourself in should you want to change. Or it could be a great learning opportunity for you to gain new skill sets um, and get new sort of recommendations, people who can vouch for your skill, vouch for your ability, um, vouch for your contributions to building organizations. So, yeah. episode, we looked at navigating different types of relationships, whether that's being a bridge like EFWA, building coalition like NANA, building networks like Jalen, or collaborating like Kobe. A big part of these things is establishing a common ground, whether that's a personal interest or professional one. Who are the people you can shoot ideas with, talk about life with, and how can you draw them in in a more strategic way? The homework then is this. Consider your next assignment or career goal and do a, a stakeholder matrix. Now, I, I have to say that I, <laughs> I work in the innovation space, so I, we do matrices, we do maps. Like, this is my thing. I love this. And I will put examples of what this looks like in the show notes. Um, but a stakeholder map, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but it's a matrix that has like a horizontal scale of power and then a vertical scale of interest. And what you're really trying to determine is like, where does someone in my circle or my future circle or my peers or whomever sit on the power line and where do they sit on the interest line? You know, like, are they someone who's like, I'm, I share very a lot of interest with, and they're also very powerful. Are they someone who I share a lot of interest with, but maybe not as powerful as it relates to maybe my vision or career or what I'm trying to do in this organization? Um, is someone really powerful, but they, we just literally have nothing in common, um, but they're in my circle and like I, you know, I'm mapping that. Like, where do they sit on that matrix? And every quadrant in the matrix. Um, each of the quadrants have something that you do, right? If it's a quadrant one, then you manage. If it's quadrant two, you inform. If it's quadrant three, you know, like each quadrant has a different thing. So if you do the exercise, I think what's helpful about it is one, you begin to start to see, you know, like actually lay out who are the people I work with or the people I'm around, et cetera. And then you begin to also think more strategic, like, okay, I should probably be engaging this person a little bit differently than I have been. Like I'm sitting on, you know, some kind of, opportunity here. I'm sitting on, you know, something that could be of value to me. And again, this is all in the space of like not being facetious or not being like a user, but being someone who takes value. Like I have something of value to give. And if I'm around people who are also valuable, like, well, how can we make this an exchange? Like, how do we build coalition? Because coalition is about power. Collaborate, which is work together to, to ensure our mutual interests. Be a bridge, right? Get, you know, one person access to something and someone access to something else. Like, whatever that looks like, everyone is benefiting. But if you take the time to do a matrix or to really map it out, you can really see in a way that maybe has been in your mind and subconscious before, like, out in the open. And if you learned anything at all from season one, it is the importance of writing things down. I said write so many times last season. So here's another opportunity you have to write down who are the people in your circle, who are the people you work with, 
and how can you better, you know, leverage and um, benefit those from and benefit to those relationships. Thank you for listening to the Inside Out by Ama G podcast, a podcast all about entrepreneurship. If you'd like to learn more about me, Ama G, visit my website, www.amabwaje.com and follow me on Twitter at Ama underscore Bwaje and Instagram at A Abwaje. This podcast was recorded at the Stabakra with creative direction, scripting and editing by Evans Kafuyofori, mixing and mastering by Joshua Ajaman, and music produced by Reynolds the Gentleman. If you've made it this far, you're a real one, and I appreciate you riding with us. See you next episode.